Hello, stackers, and welcome back to another Creation Corner episode. We're going a little special route this week instead of our usual actual play. It was a busy, 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 busy weekend that involved the stack of, half the Stack of Dice family rolling down to Florida to pick Thane up from school and bring him back. And he is joining us in this episode. What's up, stackers? I'm back again <laughs> to talk about Creation Corner stuff. That's right. And what we thought as we conversed about this to figure out what exactly we wanted to put into this special Creation Corner episode, I thought, why don't we just continue with the country creation aspect that I was working on for the last three episodes. And so we're going to pick right back up with where we left off. In this episode, we're going to continue fleshing out the country of Trand. And that, again, is a remote peninsula in the northwest corner of the continent of Edelin. There are three episodes now prior to this one in this series. In the first, I shared how you could use a Wikipedia article as a source for creating your own countries, using ideas gleaned from the article on the country to help drive your efforts. Uh, In this particular case, I'm using Finland, the Wikipedia article on Finland, as a guide. In the second episode, I started looking at the history of Finland and using that as a template for how to shape some of the events that have occurred in Trans Past. And in the last episode, we took a look at geography and how that can help shape your country, things to consider, what weather effects a land of lakes might have, and other such things. And so, again, if you've not listened to any of these episodes in the series, or if you just want to refresh your memory, please go back and listen to those. I think they're very helpful. Uh, and I'm going to be listening to them again as the party gets closer to Trand to uh, refresh my memory because there were some things I talked about that I want to make sure that I work in to the story as we go. This time, we're going to focus on a really weak area for me, and that is politics. Ooh. Yeah, so brace yourselves, stackers. If this isn't your thing, then you know you can give it a miss, but... I feel obligated to stick to the template of the Finland article, and I think there's some good that will come out of this. What do you think? I'm excited. Okay, so let's take a look at what the article has to share, and then we'll go from there. Here are the major sections of this part of the Finland article. Constitution, President, Parliament, Cabinet, Law, Foreign Relations, military, social security, and human rights. And we don't have to go one by one through these. And a lot of these might not even be applicable because this is taking, this is discussing a modern nation, whereas we're talking as about a nation that is more medieval in terms of technology and advancement. Sure. And, you know, obviously you want to make, once you settle on what kind of government you want a particular country to have, it might be better in your interest either to go back to a historical article perhaps about a country that's comparable to get an idea of what kinds of things to work in or just make it up. I mean, again, we are in a fantasy realm. Anything is fair game. You can make up a brand new kind of government and see how that flies. Maybe it will be even more memorable for your players and for you if you've completely made up the hierarchy and the way it all works and everything. So Keep that in mind always. This is a fantasy world that we're building. Go for it. What I am interested to talk about in all that is the uh, foreign relations, because 
one thing that I have just now noticed about our podcast, at least for the parts that I've I've been in it, is that we haven't really seen much about how the countries interact. Mm-hmm. We just we just hop and skip from one place to another and just kind of do our, our business there and move on. We haven't really seen anything going on between nations that, you know, if there's been diplomacy happening or even wars being waged, things to keep in mind right, for world right. building. I think we've seen a little, the tiniest bit of suspicion in some places, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, um, Certainly there was a customs agent when you got to Sethar Ben. That, yeah. And so in Ankar, you had to go through customs. You know, there are things that have indicated barriers between countries, but really, you're right, there's not been a whole lot. And that's, again, that's very much due to me not being all that comfortable with working in political themes. Yeah. I'm sure there are DMs out there who would just thrive on this. Oh, yeah. there You can make entire D&D campaigns based off of more political intrigue and less on the whole epic heroic fantasy mm-hmm. that we've been kind of going for more. And it, it works. Like, it hasn't been completely game-breaking. You know, we haven't been traveling, and I say, hey, wait a second. We don't even know what these guys' stance on feudalism is. Yeah. We, maybe, should we be helping these people at all? No, it's just, it's not, like, super imperative to the narr- to the narrative <laughs> that rhymes um, but it definitely does add a good bit of depth uh, you know little details that can really make the world a whole lot more real right absolutely and really ultimately that's what it's all about it's creating a world that resonates with you and with your players we're here to help you escape the problems of reality with a little make believe world of ours yeah and i would say that you know especially in politics heavy games that might be better suited to games that are focused on a very specific region, like a city. Yeah. Imagine it like a Waterdeep campaign. Where yeah. You never leave the walls of the city, and it's all about helping one faction in the city. Political maneuver. Exactly. You yeah. know, you're, you're either trying to undermine this party's reliability or maybe try and implicate someone over here by yeah. slipping. So, yeah. There are all sorts of things that you can do, like you said, maneuvering, that could be a lot of fun. If you and your players are a little less focused on the the staples of uh, D&D, like combat and stuff like well, that. You could even work that in. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Like, there, there's definitely... There's an assassination. Yeah. yeah, assassinations, but, you know, usually D&D is tailored more towards the sword and sorcerer we band up together and go and beat the snot out of a couple of goblins. That's what D&D is usually to me. But yeah, there's totally more interesting things that could be done with the game. Yeah. And as always, if you're a DM and you've been running games that use politics, tell us about it. Let us know what you have built into your games. What interesting things have you done to work political aspects into your campaign? Was it successful? Did your players have fun with it? You know, there is an element of intrigue and fun to being kingmakers. Yeah. Or... This man is on the throne because of us. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, upholding the weak. You know, this guy is the is supposed to be the king, but he was ousted from his throne. And so we have to go now and take down the tyrant to put the rightful king in play, whatever the case may be. There's a lot of fun you could have with that. So, yeah, good. But yeah, let's, let's talk about Finland and see what all we can derive in order to make Trand that much more real. The first thing they talk about is a constitution, 
Again, if we're not looking at a constitutional government, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I think in our discussions, what we settled on very quickly and very early was an imperial government. So you have an emperor and trans got goals of domination. And so they several times have tried throughout their history to push out into other regions to take over more land in that imperialism effort. And so you have somebody who has styled him or herself, depending on who's the current ruler, as an emperor. Yeah. And I presume, at least from our initial thinking, that maybe it was a scattered group of different tribes. Yeah, I was, I was about to bring up as an imperialist nation, you know, trend would therefore very reasonably be like a collection of various different peoples, probably, you know, very related because of their geographic location. But, you know, if we, if we take a look at imperialist Russia, you had the people in, in the West over in Moscow and the, in the cities that were more over in Europe. And you went over to the East and you had like the Cossacks and the Siberians and, and all those people that were all grouped in with the Russians because they're all under the same ruler. Right. I don't know how often monarchies mm-hmm. such as an empire would have a constitutional document. Perhaps they do. They might. I mean... So this is where my lack of knowledge about government and politics really bites me. I think that we could take the constitution more abstract into just what are the basic tenets of the nation? You know, what is valued? What is punished? What is... What are the basic rights that you can expect the common man to have? Well, let's look at it then. Let's break that down. Um, What is the hierarchy? Yeah, generally speaking, obviously the emperor is head, Mm -hmm. and I suppose the final word. Is there a sense of divine right? I mean that we see that a lot in Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, um, during that Holy Roman Empire, right? Holy Roman Empire, and just the divine right of kings, or even the mandate of heaven that you see over in China. a lot of sovereign rulers, especially if they're trying to extend their will over multiple peoples, claim divine origin, origin yeah. or right in order to legitimize their rule. And yeah. so it would make sense. I was going to ask, you know, if, if we're going to have a hierarchy with an emperor, if there would be any kind of religious elements that would play into that monarchy like there um, would almost have to be. Yeah, yeah. Priests whether or, it's ancestral worship or Anything like that. I'm tempted to think that way. Ancestral worship? Yeah. Okay. So, like, councils of elders of sorts? Yeah, in my mind, I have had the emperor who is directly supported by a council. Okay. Uh, And so, the idea that the emperor is nominally in charge of the entirety of Trand. However, he or she realizes... I can't do this by myself. I can't think of everything. I need wise people that I can count on to guide me, to help me think about things that I don't think about on my own. And so, yeah, absolutely. An aristoc- I think of- like, like a council of aristocratic, like elder nobles that are maybe built up of representatives from elder councils of regional groups. Yeah, we could say that that's where it has come to in the present time, in, mm-hmm. in the game time. Yeah. I'd like to think that when it first started out, it was the original self-styled emperor reaching out to the wise among the, 
the tribes that he respected for their tenacity in battle against him. Yeah. Where he really, it was less about aristocracy and more about worth. Yeah. Established worth. Mm -hmm. That's not to say there are no worthy aristocrats, but certainly, you know, this particular chieftain really fought well against me. He knows that part of the country. I want to pull him in to my counselors so and have I'll, him guide me. And also, so that way he is less inclined to turn against me. Yeah. Perchance. And so we could also have the notion of, uh, like Rome did, with political hostages. Mm -hmm. You send your son to live in my court, and I will teach him how to be a noble. Or else. <laughs> or else. <laughs> yeah. And you, you will behave. Uh, Speak softly. Yeah, very, very much. But that sounds good. And going back to the notion of a constitution, whether literal or just metaphorical. Mm -hmm. How widespread is learning in trend literacy most specifically i would say the divide is physical physical you yeah. have the upper the highlands of the north where it's blisteringly cold where the where the more nomadic tribes live i would say that education at least formal education is much lower there understandable they have a lot of earthy wisdom they have a lot of passed down oral traditions However, you come down off of that plateau and into the southern Greenlands. Closer to the rest of the world. Exactly. Where, where more of the cities are, and then you start getting into what we would consider education. Civil, yeah. You know, the schools and universities and that sort of thing. Makes sense. Um, so I would say that as far as ethos goes, you probably have a people that's fiercely proud of its accomplishments in the face not only of great danger through all the wars that they have faced through their history, mm -hmm. but also pride in their, their people yeah, because they are a unification of a bunch of different, really, really different groups pulled together under one banner, so to speak. Uh, I would see that as a mark of pride. We have taken all these things yeah, and we've merged them into one effective country. And I, I can see it at least by, by the time of the game, you have trend that, while fairly unified, is split mo mostly among those mountains. You have the northern group, which is less educated, a little seen as uncouth. You know, they're basically one half of trend. And then you have the southern educated, civilized part of trend. And so I can imagine those being like the two major groups in the empire. Um, even though individual, you know, individually they are conglomerations of numerous tribes themselves. Yeah. And then you could have almost like border tribes where they're kind of caught between the two worlds. Yeah. Semi-civilized or however you want to call it. Yeah. Where they, they almost act as go-betweens. Yeah. So constitution, I guess we're taking it to be more of a way of approaching life in general, maybe unwritten rules for how to how to live life and how to treat others yeah uh, so maybe a, a heavy sense of if i can take it and hold on to it it's mine yeah makes sense so very capitalist i guess world but with that would also need to come a very heavy law yeah because if you're doing it to your own i'm taking that from you and i'm holding on to it and it's mine that's not going to fly. You're, you're going to tear the country apart. So there has to be a strong body 
that regulates where the lines are drawn mm-hmm. and has to make very clear punishments and ways of life so that you live within your box and if you stray out of it, expect trouble. Yeah. So I guess from that standpoint, within the country, the laws are tailored to making people get along and trying to erase differences between them. Yeah. Almost like assimilation, um, you know, lots of dispersal of people. Yeah. Maybe even some syncretism going on where you have this God or ancestor that you worship tribe a, and you have this tribe tribe B and we have this thing so really, your thing that you worship is a lot like ours. So we're just going to kind of merge them together and make one entity out of it. Yeah. Um, about the whole ancestral worship, I I can definitely imagine that being is like the the main unifying element throughout the the empire, where you know that's one of the primary factors in why they stick together as they do. Mm-hmm. And really, so I think it was in the geography episode that I had mentioned that wolves are a, a common element that runs throughout Trand. Mm. And so the idea of the pack, you are loyal to your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look out for each other, you help each other, but anyone threatens the pack and you, you're after them. Yeah. So yeah, the way of the wolf, let's call it. Okay. Um, and again, this doesn't necessarily need to be a, a formal document or anything. Oh, no. But it's, it's something that's been pushed through ages oh, so yeah. that people begin to, are, are very highly encouraged to look after each other within the borders. Yeah. Outside, look out. Yeah, very, with the sparse lack of literacy in the North and the widespreadness-ity of the ancestral worship, both enforce kind of like less documented laws and more just traditional morality, mm-hmm. where um, laws less pertain to actual morals and more just you know a code of, of punishments for offenses, whereas everything else is just kind of like expected you know, methods of behavior, you know, laws of hospitality and civil disputes and things like that are usually fairly uniform throughout the empire because not very subject to change over time because they worship ancestors and are very big on and are therefore big on sticking to tradition. Yeah. And so we don't change what our ancestors set before us because that's viewed as sacred. And it almost seems that there would have needed to have been at some point in the past, a huge convocation to draw representatives from all these various tribes to basically thresh out differences between them Mm -hmm. and establish that uniformity. Uniformity doesn't just happen, or at least not easily. And so you would have to have representatives coming together to talk through things, to come to agreements, to balance things. Okay, we'll give this up, but you're going to have to give this up. Um, Yeah, I like this. I like it. And so the constitution was formed over years and years and years of wrangling. Yeah, maybe when the empire first really was founded and has just been imposed on more peoples as the empire has expanded to where it is at this yeah. point. And even for a short time, if you read the wiki entry on bartolon.wikia.com, mm-hmm. the entry for Trand has a lot of depth to it. That was one of the 
early ones that we worked on. And so I, I did a lot of work on it. And it talks about Trend's early efforts. Trend was the first country formed in our talking through it. And so they, they took a lot of pride in being the first to call themselves a unified people with a common goal. And they pushed out into Dunmore at the time. I think it was just Moriga. Yeah, Moriga was, was one nation, one then it huge split. nation, right? And so they they pushed in, and then eventually were driven back. But there, I would say, there are still remnants, kind of like when you go up to Alaska and you still see some traces of Russia, yeah, up there, or the you know Viking settlers after the Danish invasions of England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seeing those traces could also be a fun thing. So as you get to that border region. And you mm-hmm. start hearing maybe a mixed language. Mixed language, different accents, dialects. Some of those remote traditions. Yeah. Um, outlier villages that exhibit more Trandish, Trandian, Trandic. Trandin. Trandin. Um, uh, characteristics that you know differ a bit more from the Dunmorrigan yeah. ways of mm-hmm. law and order. Okay. I see, yeah, I see Dunmorriga as almost like a direct opposite to that where it's very definite law codes um, written down, set in stone. Actually, sorry, a bit more adaptable, actually. Um, I see. Because Dunmoriga is patterned very much after the UK, the, the various regions and countries that make up the United Kingdom, I see it as very individualized, mm-hmm. not having that same homogeneity of people brought together into a single mindset. You have the glens with little towns, and then this town has a completely different lifestyle and way of approaching life to this one over this ridge. Uh, And so, yeah, I see Dunmorga as ideologically very different from Trand. Yeah. And so we move on to the emperor. And the role of the emperor is to hold the country together, to maintain the pride and prestige of Trand, and to expand the country, as long as it's an empire, mm-hmm. your your goal is to get more empire. <laughs> yeah. I envision the emperor as more of a figurehead because that council of elders is more about the settling of differences and the compromise. That the emperor is more of a figurehead, a symbol of the national unity, and also the sword arm of Trand. Okay, yeah. That's that's where I think more of it. Perhaps the the difference is, like you said, council equals binding element, trying to get everyone on the same page, mm-hmm. where the emperor's push and drive is on acquisition. Yeah. I bring it in, you fix it. <laughs> Essentially. Is <laughs> kind of the way it's coming out here. Yeah. Uh, now, Again, maybe over time, as you look at dynastic lines, you see super motivated, super capable, and then just very quickly a decline in desire and Mm -hmm. ability. Yeah, that was my dad's thing, but I'm not interested in that. Exactly. Or he did all the work and I get to enjoy all the fruits. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have the fruits because the previous guy sat around and if you want to pass it on to someone else, you're going to have to do some fruit work too. Yeah. Okay. And so the emperor, successful emperors in this line are actively trying to expand the borders. And perhaps now in this more enlightened time, they're trying to do it in other ways. And that takes us back to foreign relations. 
how Trand interacts with Rindis and Vondhide and Moraga and Dunmoraga becomes very important. Yeah, those immediate countries they would interact with more often. And establishing sea routes to Rahajmanoth there on the west coast or to Dalhwin, which is just kind of a stone's throw away. Yeah. So there are all sorts of different ways. And of course, with the rise of air travel, now you're looking at even expanding continental relations Mm -hmm. uh, all the way down to Muwaka. Uh, So yeah, you've got some fun things going on there. Mm -hmm. I like the notion of the, basically the division of labor between emperor and council. That's good. Good stuff. And that could also lead to some interesting tensions uh, because then the council has a vested interest in the rate of acquisition. If the emperor has taken over too much, too much, too much, well, we can't keep yeah, up. slow down. We need to uh, incorporate these guys. And so then you very likely have a lot of problems if you have an aggressive emperor on the throne. And then suddenly you have a stone wall for a council that does not that, that opposes everything that you try to do. And of course... That builds enmity, and so now you have strife between yeah. emperor and counseling body. Yeah, and therein lies your political strife. So you either have, you know, a slow and deliberate council with an emperor that's champing at the bit, or a council that wants more, but the emperor is indecisive and slow. Yeah, or both, and then you have a country that just lacks direction. Yeah, so yeah. now you have a lazy emperor... And a council that doesn't want to take on anymore. And or very occasionally yeah. you get an aggressive emperor with a fast moving council. And those They'd are trans. <laughs> yeah, those are trans great eras. Yeah. Of expansion. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. We talked a bit about law. Foreign relations has kind of been there. I mean, yeah. we've kind of danced around we've it. Really, I think, just kind of glanced over the majority of the topics as we've. But not military. Conscious. Not military. So what does the military of Trand look like? I would assume they have a pretty strong navy. Yeah, being a peninsular nation like that, navy would also would be a good thing to develop, especially saying as they're kind of up their bunny ears with Rindus. Mm-hmm. Um, Has there been a lot of conflict between Rindus and Trand in the past? Quite possibly. I, I would say with Rindus... And the sea wolves that we've talked about in the past, maybe not in a recording, but you and I have definitely talked about the Viking equivalent for Rindus Mm. with ships that go out and plunder shipping lanes, that kind of thing. So I could definitely see almost like the freebooting system of, of the golden age of England and Spain, where you have taken ships and capturing booty and all that stuff. And so you have what amounts to an unsanctioned, person of that nationality attacking you your shipping but to act against them would could be taken as an act of war exactly so it's a very delicate situation yeah um so i could definitely see uh conflicts or at least potential for conflict between trend and rendis and definitely some tersity between Trend and the nations it borders, Dunmorgan, Vondheide, especially because it's an expansionist nation. Um, maybe there's a great deal of uh, pushing back and forth on the borders between those nations. Maybe um, even a fortified border. Yeah. I think we had talked about that in the past too. We that, might have. That there was a almost like a great wall built 
hmm. along that narrow neck of land to try and keep Trand within its bounds. The Northern Horde. Yeah. Bay. I do also want to ask, the Navy would definitely be a good strong mm-hmm. point, but on the land, what would they excel at? I'm inclined to think that, especially drawing upon the Northern uh, provinces, being nomadic peoples, cavalry would be a pretty good um force of them especially if the southern nations are building walls yeah as a direct counter to the fact they use horses so lancers and even horse archers Mm -hmm. um i can see being their staples backed up with more professional infantry from the south yeah and then a lot of cross training where you send your southern infantry into that upper plateau region for cold weather training Mm -hmm. and so you have a lot of opportunities for sending folks around this rather large piece of land to uh, to get expertise in different kinds of operations. And I also see it as a standing army. It's for the glory of Trand. Oh, yeah. We have an Without army that doubt. never gets dispelled, yeah. unlike maybe the more southern countries where you're a farmer. Yeah. I take you today. You fight me, fight for me tomorrow. And then when it's done, you go back home. Yeah. That allows you to build a very large army very quickly, mm-hmm. but as soon as it's over, you've lost your army. Yeah. So I see Trand as a country that, for the national pride and for the splendor of it all, maintains this standing oh, yeah. army. Especially in the south, they have professional infantry um, with, you know, just standard equipment, parades often, and up in the north, that's just the way of life. Mm-hmm. Especially with the horse archers as um, as a means of getting food, and exactly. then you just give one of them a pole, and it's devastating. Yeah. So you just draw upon some of the the tribesmen of the north, and then you pair them with your your gleaming footmen, and you've got a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and and that could also lead to some specialized tactics. For instance, double mounting horses, where you have archer slash rider up front. And then behind, maybe even uh, specially selected soldiers that are small, almost like jockey size, and but they're wiry and tough, and they ride into battle, and you know you just tumble off and, and get up, and suddenly you have moved a platoon-sized element, a company-sized element, battalion, whatever, yeah, into a place where it wasn't five minutes ago, yeah, you know. So you could have some fun with how Trand mobilizes its forces by really playing with its strengths and being creative with how it would respond quickly to, uh, to danger. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, if you have an aggressive country, you're very likely to find an alliance of countries against it, banding together for the common good. Predominantly Dunmorgan von Hyde. And Moriga. And Moriga as well as yeah. allies. Mm-hmm. So very likely the three of them forming a loose coalition. Yeah. That just basically keeps a watchful eye on that border. Yeah, they're not. I, I don't see them as necessarily interested in overrunning Trand and taking it over, but just preserving themselves, containing. Yeah. yeah, and that would also be interesting to see with diplomacy. Mm-hmm. It, it could almost be that Trandon diplomats are viewed with great suspicion. Are you here to scope us out? Are you here to? try and put poison in our ear, you know, whatever the case might be, it, it would be interesting to see the smoothness of the diplomats coming and trying to angle for Trand, mm-hmm. trying to poke holes in the defenses or 
understand better what the weaknesses of these countries are. Yeah. So that could be a lot of fun too. Uh, hmm. For for somebody who doesn't really care much about politics and doesn't follow it and doesn't get into it in games, I'm finding this very interesting. Oh yeah, and a lot for of sure. Fun. It, it's always interesting to flesh out how a nation works because then you get ideas for things that you can make your players do. Yeah. You have any other thoughts about politics and or government? Not particularly. Not at the moment. No. And again, these are always open for revisiting. So if we ever come across any more great ideas that we'd love to toss around, we can do that again. Mm -hmm. Do a part B to this or something. But yeah, again, Dungeon Masters, players, stackers, have you been in a game? Have you played a game that had political intrigue in it? Please do tell us about it. We'd love to know about it. You can catch us on Twitter and Instagram at Stackadice or by email at stack.o.dice at gmail.com. And please be on the lookout. We are going to record the last two episodes of our regular season coming up soon. And so basically by the end of May, we're going to consider season three done. Hmm. Which is hard to believe. Three years of this. Then we will have our summer break, maybe throw some extra content out there like we have been doing, and then pick back up probably sometime in September, probably the beginning of September, and get rolling with a brand new season and a lot of fun. Thane and I have been doing some talking and planning, and yeah, I think we, we have, have some good things worked out. So You guys don't even know what's happening. <laughs> As always, stackers, we want to thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think, again, using those memes that we talked about earlier. And we'll see you here again next time at Stack of Dice. <laughs>